Hi, this is Michelle Weidenbenner, your Chief Hope Builder. I am the author of Mom's Letting Go Without Giving Up, Seven Steps to Self-Recovery. You can download that for free at momslettinggo.com. Welcome to the podcast that will help you feel at least 15% better. Feel free to join our Facebook private group, Mom's Letting Go, also, and surround yourself with other moms who understand your pain. If you would like to take your journey into a deeper accountability and recovery for yourself, join us at momslettinggo.teachable.com where we have a subscription membership. We have a tribe of moms who are all together in support groups and coaching and we study together and grow together and we are going to write a book together so that we can help other moms come into recovery with hope and determination and a way to find their own identity and recapture their purpose that they lose in the throes of dealing with an addicted loved one. If you find this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave us a review because that's how other moms will be able to find us too. God bless. All right. Hi, this is Michelle Weidenbetter, your Chief Hope Builder. And today I have Steve Wildsmith with me. He is with Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center in Cornerstone Cornerstone, um, of Recovery in Tennessee. He is also a freelance journalist and a recovering addict. So when, when my friend sent me something that Steve had written, I thought I need to share this. I need to share this with my mom. So welcome, Steve. Thank you, Michelle. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for asking me. Our pleasure, totally. So moms, I I just want to share um, a little bit of what Steve's tribute was for his friend who he lost. And um, I think that you're going to find um, just beauty in his words. And he says this, Angie was one of the first people to see through my bullshit. When I first came around to the rooms of recovery, I was terrified to let anyone in. So I did that whole keep everyone at arm's length thing. Anyone who's existed on the periphery of a group of people who vibrate on a different spiritual plane knows full well the immense power such a group wields. It's like staring into a roaring furnace. So bright is the light and ferocious is the heat. And if you're not truly ready to let it burn away all of the blackened pieces of your soul, it'll make you flinch. You stay a safe distance, giving out mannequin hugs and telling everyone you're fine. You get there after the meeting starts and leave as soon as the circle closes, because there's no way you think these people are ever going to want you around if they see who you truly are. Only thing is, they see that part of you long before you see it in yourself. It's a pretty common occurrence even today. And while a lot of us make overtures to those who decline to enter our orbit with a desperate refusal, we don't push. Attraction rather than promotion and all that 
but for whatever reason, Angie wasn't having it when I shied away. And at the end of the tribute, he says, there are cracks in my soul tonight where your light used to shine. I know it's shining now in a better place, burning with the brilliance of a thousand candles. I weep with sorrow that you could never recognize in you what the rest of us saw so easily. Oh, so I, I read that, I get emotional because don't we all want somebody to write a tribute? Um, about us when we die like that. And um, so Steve, it's like you are able to show us what it was like walking in one of those sobriety meetings. So tell us a little bit more about Angie and, and your journey of addiction and recovery. Absolutely. Um, I uh, grew up in your typical middle-class American family. Uh, we were about as wonderbred as you could get. You know, my parents were married for 51 years before my father died. Um, typical middle-class had a younger brother who was not an addict. Uh, my father worked for the same company for 40-something years before he retired. There's no real history of addiction or alcoholism in my family. But through some things that I would come to figure out later, I always felt like I was walking through my childhood on eggshells. It always felt like I, I was just, there was, I, it was a sense of impending doom, I like to say. And the first time I tried my first drug, which was alcohol, it was like I was able to let out a deep breath I had been holding my entire life and I didn't even know it. And I remember the first drink like it was yesterday. And that was when I was 17 years old. So it's been a long time, but I remember it like it was yesterday because I remember, I remember thinking these words, this is how I always want to feel. Because wow. suddenly, Michelle, suddenly it felt like that the guys over in the corner weren't plotting to kick my ass or that I could talk to a girl without my face bursting into flames. I didn't feel self-conscious. I didn't feel alone and from that point forward it became a never-ending journey until I was 30 years old to maintain that feeling through any means necessary wow so you know how you just described that in in the moment I know you thought that but were you able to talk about how you felt um, right away or was it later that you looked back and realized what that experience was like when you were 17? It probably wasn't until later that I was able to realize that and fully articulate it. All I knew in the moment was that, wow, this, this works. You know, this something about this is magical. It felt like I had found a chemical suit of armor and that suddenly I was able to be all of the things that I maybe wanted to be, but never thought I could. And so I immediately, from that point forward, pivoted into what we would call functional alcoholism. And, you know, I was a functional alcoholic all through college, but at the time I didn't recognize that because we were in college. That's what everyone did. Yeah. But other people had an off switch and I didn't. It would be 4 a.m. and we would have to be in class in four hours and everybody else would be like, I'm really drunk. It's time to go to bed. And I'm like, the sun is not up yet. We're not stopping. 
You know, I didn't have an off switch. Right. I've heard that. I've heard that. So it's like your wow factor goes on for much longer than other people when they're ready to like say, okay, I'm done. Or yeah, I'm not doing that again. Cause hangover was the beast. But, um, and, and so what, um, what, this is kind of a switch, but you know, we have moms listening Absolutely. and how was your mom in that time? I guess 17, well, you weren't home much more after that if you went to college, right? No, no. and it's only been in my recovery that I've been able to sort of untangle the relationship with my mother. And a lot of what I remember from my childhood was that my mother was not a very happy woman. And I, it felt like you know, I was always walking on eggshells because either I was trying to figure out what I was doing wrong or what I could do to make her happy. And it took a long time to unravel and untangle that. And at first, when I first got clean, I, was, I, I felt a lot of anger. But then I began to pull at those threads and began to see that my mother in a five to 10 year period around the time I was born, lost all four of her grandparents, her father, a brother, and a daughter, my older sister, all within that time frame. And my mother comes from, you know, very poor working class stock in Mississippi where people don't go to therapy and they don't talk about their problems. Right. You put your head down and you persevere. So to my mother, Therapy was never an option, and I don't even know if it was ever discussed, but I do know I've, I've, I've heard stories throughout my childhood about she went into premature labor with my, my sister, and was what happened was she had a case of appendicitis, and the doctor misdiagnosed it as phantom labor pains, so she stayed at home for another two or three days until her appendix burst. By that point, she was septic. She went into premature labor. They had to put her in a medically induced coma. And when she came out of the coma, she was no longer pregnant and her child was dead. As oh. you can, I know. As you can imagine. Tragic. Yeah. So that explains so much about my mother's unhappiness and sure. so much about, you know, with the way she was when I was a child. And I how, just, I, how old were you then? What, how old were you at that moment? I was born two years after that. So I, my, my sister, okay. uh, um, yep. So, and I, I'm sure both myself and my younger brother brought her some measure of joy, but there was never any treatment. There was never any therapy for that because that's, you know, the, yeah, the, the year after that, she lost her father. And yeah. the year after that, she lost her younger brother to cancer. So it was just one tragedy after another, and it compounded until, you know, my mother was of, like I said, she was, she was, I'm, I feel certain, even though there was never an official diagnosis, that she was clinically depressed throughout sure. my childhood, which is understandable. Right. Yes. And I've heard Gabor Mate, I probably pronounced his name wrong, talk about trauma, the trauma in his life too. And growing up in in such a difficult time, and his mother was, um, you know, they had to hide him, you know, because of the Holocaust and everything. And so he, um, it, it just really, and as a child, 
you, you don't understand it. You internalize, you think, like you said, well, what, what can I do to make her happy? It must be me. Um, which is, you know, I, 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 most of the listeners know that our, our son and daughter-in-law went through addiction for a long time. And so we had guardianship of their children. And in that time, we took them through trauma therapy, you know, so they could talk about it and address it. But even so, I, I don't know that, um, it worked. Like, I don't, you know, the wounds become deep and not everybody can articulate, especially when you're a child. So thank you for sharing that. Um, what, so you said you have a great relationship with your mom today. Tell me a little bit about that. We obviously, our relationship worsened greatly uh, when I was in my addiction. Uh, she and my father, like so many parents, blamed themselves. They had a profound lack of understanding of the nature of addiction. So they thought it was obviously something that they did. You know, why was I like this? Um, and it got to the point where I was stealing from my parents. I will never forget the look in my mother's face when she realized they had taken her jewelry, including the jewelry given to her by her mother and her grandparents and pawned it to buy heroin. I'll never forget that. And, you know, the look of betrayal and just complete sadness. And it took, it took a while and I'll, I'll never forget. I had maybe six months clean. I was living in a halfway house and I came home to see my, my, my family. Our relationship was mending. And, uh, as soon as I walked in, my mother had just gotten home from the store and we both looked at the counter where her purse was at the same time. And she didn't say anything, but she took her purse and she went back to the bedroom and I heard her close the bedroom door and lock it. And I was so offended. <laughs> I remember I, I was. I called my sponsor when I left and I was like, Mike, I've got six months clean and my mama's still locking up her purse. And my sponsor, God love him, said, Let's see, Steve, how long did you use and get high for? I said, mm, I don't know, about 13 years. And he said, okay, if your mom's still locking up her purse after 13 years, then you can call me and whine. But until then, you let her be where she's at. And that really humbled me. And I had to you know, understand that my mom had a healing journey of her own. And the best amends that I could make were what we call living amends because the words that came out of my mouth at that time were meaningless. I had said, I'm sorry. I had said, I will stop. I had said, I won't do this again. So many times that nothing I said held any value. The only thing of value that I could offer that woman was my continued improvement. Right. Here's the, yes. But Michelle, here's the saving grace of that. When I picked up two years clean, my mother put the house keys in my hand and said, me and your father are going to go out of town for the weekend. Can you come over and check the mail, water the plants? And today I'm, I'm my mother's rock. My father died unexpectedly about four years ago and I'm there. I'm the one who calls to check on her. I'm the one who comes by and does chores around the house. I'm the one who, you know, makes sure that she has what she needs. I'm, I'm, I get to be her friend now and I get to be, the son that you're she deserves. so blessed yes. she's blessed and you're blessed and when you described you know how she gave you those keys after two years like that just makes me cry um and 
so many, so many of moms in our group want that. They want that so bad. And they want it so bad that sometimes they think they have it when it's only been 30 days or, you know, 60 days. And I'm like, you guys work on yourself during this time because it's going to take more. It's not an event. It's not, it's not like that. It's you, you have to just um, work on yourself because not that we're a part of the problem, but we can be a part of the solution. And it's learning how to communicate and how to talk. So let's go back. So when was that moment? Like, okay, so there were many moments where, yeah, mom, I'm going to get clean. I'm going to, I'm going to do right by you and all that. So when was, when was it and what prompted it? Like, what was it that you finally got it, that this is it. I have to stay sober. It was when everything came crashing. I'd been through treatment twice um, and was still not ready to fully commit to a program of recovery. Um, I thought that my intellect and my vocational success could lead me to an alternative solution instead of one that has worked for millions of addicts and alcoholics since 1935. And what happened, I guess the, the turning point was once my parents had discovered I was stealing from them. I was living in their home at the time. And they told me, we love you, but you've got to go. You're not welcome in our home anymore. And my father told me, I'm going to drive you up to the local uh, mental institution that has a detox facility. And I will come pick you up from there once you're out and take you wherever. If you get into a halfway house, that's great. If you get into a treatment facility, that's great. If you need to go to the mission, that's where I'll take you. But you're not coming back home. And I have no doubt absolutely none that that was the most difficult decision of their lives mm -hmm. i know they stayed up at night beating themselves up wondering if it was the right thing and here's the thing at the time i didn't protest i did not tell them they were making the wrong choice i did not berate them because i knew i knew I didn't belong in their house because of the things I had done. I was so deeply ashamed that, you know, at the time I didn't really care much about getting clean. I just wanted the pain to stop. And I remember sitting in detox, literally praying that the nurses would mess up my medication and give me something I was allergic to. So it would kill me. That's how miserable I was. Now that doesn't surprise me because I hear that. I hear that a lot. And not just um, directly, but indirectly, I hear it in, you know, by the time they get to the point where they're so disgusted with themselves that they just want to make the pain stop and they don't, they don't know how. Um, so when your, when your dad dropped you off there, what did you say to him? What, what do you remember? I just remember I didn't have a lot to say because, again, I was so consumed with guilt and shame. I do know he told me that he loved me and that, um, you know, he sat there in the waiting room until they took me back. And for the next six days, I detoxed off of opiates. And um, they came and saw me on one of the visitation days. And I did a lot of crying and a lot of apologizing. And, you know, at, at the time, they were just very hurt. Um, and I remember my father saying, well, what are you going to do, Steve? Unfortunately, even though I was not fully committed to a recovery program, 
I had enough involvement that I had made some friends, including a man that you know would become my sponsor. And he came to see me, and he just told me, "So, what are you, what are you willing to do, Steve, to get better?" And at the moment, the only thing I could say was, "Anything, Mike. I'll do anything." And he said, "I'm going to hold you to that." And he slid across phone numbers and said, these are some halfway houses. I want you to call each and every one and find yourself a place to live. And I did the next day. And I got a bed in a halfway house and my father picked me up after six days of detox and drove me to that facility. It was six o'clock on a Tuesday night. And I walked through the door of the EMJ Center in Knoxville, Tennessee, and my life was forever changed. Oh, so you didn't relapse after that. No, this was okay. March, March 20th, 2002. Um, like I said, I had been I had been through treatment a couple of times before, but this last time, that was it. It was I was done. Do you remember? And maybe maybe you don't. Um, what was it that your? How did your parents learn finally what they needed to do? What was it that finally set them in that direction? Because um, so many so moms will say, "Well, I want to help them," right? But it, and they they get mixed up on boundaries where well, you can love somebody and still have boundaries. You know, here's what I will do. Here's what I won't do. And just listen instead of trying to fix. So what was it like? Did your parents read a lot about addiction? What was it that finally helped them see what they needed to do? <sighs> Unfortunately, my parents uh, were very stubborn, and I encouraged them to go to some 12-step uh, meetings for family members, Al-Anon or Naranon. They didn't go, but my sponsor and his wife uh, got to know them and were very good friends with them, and so they were very patient. Now, that my sponsor did not talk about me to them. He would just offer them some suggestions similar to what they would get if they had gone to their own 12-step program. You know, about setting boundaries, about letting go, about self-care. Mm -hmm. And so I think they got a lot of those tools. I think they probably would have gotten a lot more if they'd found a support group of their own. Um, whether, you know, I know that around here today, there are a number of Al-Anon groups, a couple of Naranon groups. There are even more Celebrate Recovery family groups. Yeah. Um, you know, I can think of a handful right here in the Knoxville area that, you know, have been indispensable for family members who are trying to navigate this process. And, you know, it's, it's been amazing. You know, a couple of the, uh, of the, the leaders of those groups, one in particular is a woman who lost her son to an overdose back in 2013. And what she has done is she's taken her grief and channeled it into a recovery ministry, if you will, uh, not religious, but just as uh, she, she's a shepherd for family members who are hurting. And she is, she's my absolute hero. I love this woman. Her name is Jan McCoy. And she's, I think she would definitely be someone I should put you in touch with because I yes. think she's amazing on your podcast. It sounds like it because I'm all about like mom's recovering. So this is, I think I shared this with you. I want to empower 1 million moms of addicted loved ones um, by 2025, because I can't fight this alone, but who better than 
moms who are going through this, right? So if they can get well, then they can implement those kind of programs in their communities. They can go to jails. They can start jail programs where there's recovery programs, like the jails and the prisons, like that's a whole nother thing, right? They can run workshops there. Um, they can do, you know, do what your friend is doing. There's so much work that needs to be done. And so that's what inspires me um, to keep going. And there's, there's purpose in our pain, um, just like with you. And you're using your gift of writing um, to bring awareness to, you know, the addiction world, to the stigma. So can you tell us a little bit about um, your passion for writing and what are you doing with that now? Absolutely. I, uh, I was a professional newspaper journalist for about 25 years. Um, I've always written about, uh, ever since, when I got clean in 2002, I'd always written a personal column, um, just a, you know, just observations, you know, humor, whatever. And people always seem to identify with it. Well, and it was always stuff that was happening to me or around me. So when I got a year clean, it f I felt really led. I wanted to talk about my recovery. I wanted to talk about my addiction. So I talked to my editor, who at the time was also in recovery. He got clean through church and was a you know, a part-time Methodist minister, in addition to being a newspaper editor. And he gave me his blessings. He said, go for it. I think, you know, see what happens. So I, I did. But because opening myself up, I was being very vulnerable. But what I found... Michelle was so many people reaching out going, thank you, not for anything that I did, but for just opening up the conversation, just like you were doing, yeah, you know, yeah. so many people know, if I go to a room or a, 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 an event and I speak about addiction, I always ask, please raise your hand if you know or love someone in your life who is an addict or an alcoholic, never, never have I been in a room where less than 95% of the people in there raise their hand. Yeah. Never. We all know someone. We all have someone. And so I think people, that was, like I said, that was back in 2003, a year after I got clean. So there was less conversation about that then. So I've always kind of uh, written about that. Well, in 2018, the newspaper business was sort of starting to decline. I've got a family and I had an opportunity to come to work in the marketing department here at Cornerstone of Recovery, a drug and alcohol treatment center right outside of Knoxville. Do a lot of recovery writing for the blog. Um, I still do some freelance journalism. Um, the last 20 years of my career, I was a music and entertainment journalist. And one of the things that I do that I'm really proud of is I have a website, a blog called The Ties That Bind Us. And it is just www.thetiesthatbindus.org. And it is a weekly interview series with musicians in recovery. And it's, you know, just powerful examples of stories of, you know, people out there from local bands to some big names like Lou Graham, a foreigner, and, you know, Ann Wilson of Heart telling their stories of recovery from addiction and alcoholism. Wow. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? It is. So, it really is. So do you have a book in you? Do you, if you if you were going to write a book, what would your book be about? You know, I've been asked that quite a bit, um, and I always say that because I get paid to write for a living, the last thing I want to do when I get home at night is sit down and write some more. So I don't quite know that I have the discipline. Um, 
but who knows? You know, if recovery has taught me anything is that anything is possible if I have the willingness to do it. Right. So it all comes down to my own willingness. Well, you could also, you know, you could also take all your blogs and your articles and, you know, put them, put them in a book somehow, um, include some inspirational things in there too, um, with each, with each day or what, you know, whatever, I'm always full of ideas. I love it. But, um, and I, I hope that, so we are in the process of writing Unhackable Moms of Addicted Loved Ones, Closing the Gap Between Havoc and Hope, because I'm a hope builder in mom's lives, and I'm always looking for ways to help them recover. So what, what, a couple things, what would you, um, what advice would you give a mom whose child is in the throes of addiction right now and she just can't seem to reach them and she doesn't know what to do? What would you say to her? First and foremost, find a support group. Recovering addicts can't do this alone, which is why we have one another in 12-step programs and fellowships around the world. Parents of those in recovery or those who are struggling to get into recovery need all of the support that they can get. Again, I know one of the things that really troubled my parents was, you know, they didn't have a lot of support from people in their church or um, their friends or neighbors because no one knows how to talk about this. I think they do now. I think thanks to people like you who are opening up that dialogue, I think there's a lot more comfort when it comes to having this discussion. But a lot of times, you know, addiction and alcoholism are the elephants in the room. Everybody sees it, but nobody wants to say, hey, there's a damn pink elephant in the room. Yeah. Well, you know? and they, a lot of times it's because they know they can't do anything about it. They can't, right. you know, you can't control another person. Right. Um, so think, get support. Think, yeah, support groups are so crucial because not only, because sometimes you just need somebody to listen. You just need somebody to vent to, you know, you know that nobody might not be able to fix it, but one of the things that we're taught in recovery is that pain shared is pain lessened. Ooh. Pain shared is pain lessened. So sometimes just talking about the hurt you feel, the helplessness you feel, the despair that you feel is going to lessen those things. So I think I cannot overemphasize enough to find a support group, whether it's through step I'm like Al-Anon or a Celebrate Recovery Family Program or any number of you online support groups, you know, anything you can do to surround yourself with your people. So I have to, since you said that, I have to plug, we have, I, I started um, an online support group and they have to pay to come in. And sometimes they'll say, oh my gosh, can't believe you're making me pay. You know, I can't believe she's having this paid, right? Well, so for what I do, um, so many different things in there and it costs money, right? So I have to, but I also spend a lot of money on myself to educate myself. And so I know that people who pay, pay attention and I want them to come in and transform. I don't want them just to come in and, um, or join. Like I have moms who join and never come. They never come to a meeting. And so I, I reach out and reach out because I think some of it is tech, you know, they're, they're uncomfortable with Zoom. So I try to schedule one-on-one and I, I, I create all these little tutorials and show them how, because I used to be afraid of Zoom. I did, I get it. But, um, 
Yeah. And so the moms in the group, we have like a one-on-one -on -one success partner. So we do that. We have WhatsApp. So if, if somebody is in like yesterday, one of our, we pray for the sons and daughters in the group. And one of them um, just got out of prison about six months ago and he's doing amazing. He's been sober for three years. Um, but abstinence, you know, isn't the same as recovery, but he's in recovery because he's, he's going through these little steps. Well, his probation officer um, was challenging him on his address. And it was, it was just one of those moments where, you know, there as felons, you know, you're treated like crap and here he is trying to do the right thing, but they have to be strict. So anyway, so we're in WhatsApp and she's like talking, saying, you guys, can you pray? Cause he's meeting for this probation officer. And so we're all praying and um, it resolved itself really well. Everything is fine, but it's just that knowing that in that moment, somebody has your back and even though they can't fix it, they understand it. And every single, like two of our moms have kids that are um, homeless on the streets. And then a lot of others are in re different phases of recovery. So, you know, it's always up and down, but mainly it's just, and that's what I tell people, you've got to find support and it doesn't have to be my group, but um, sure wish it would be because <laughs> we're awesome. But anyway, yes. yeah. Uh, but any you're interviewing me, of course you're awesome. <laughs> yeah, two awesome people. So um, thank you for that. So if you were gonna, um, I guess, I I would really like for you to write something for. So how? What would be an idea of something that you could write to help moms become unhackable and? You know what I mean by hacked? It's like we get hacked um, by ads, by emails, by, you know, um, our bank accounts, our visa accounts. You know, we can get hacked in that way. But when I'm talking about hacked, I'm talking about chaos in our life that sucks our energy and takes our time. And we're not serving in our purpose. We're not serving, you know, with our gifts that we've been given. And so... Um, anyway, what's your idea? I'd love to hear it. Well, I think um, what I would, uh, I think I would almost like to revisit how my mother's trauma informed mine. And again, I think it kind of comes back to the idea of self-care on the part of moms, because here's the thing. <clears throat> I think for me as a father, you know, there are many times that I, you know, I, I like to think I'm doing a good job, but there are other times when I, I, I'm fearful and I'm wondering if I'm passing on my damage to my kids. And then part of me knows that I am, you know, but here's the thing. I also know that because of the work that I do in recovery, that I'm being a better father, you know, I'm working on being a better human and that will translate to being a better parent. And I think I don't care how old a mom is. I think anyone who works on self-improvement is going to be a better person and the relationships they have are going to improve as a result. You know, a lot of, I think that was probably one of my mom's biggest things. She felt like she was too old. But here's the thing. I've seen addicts and alcoholics in their 60s and in their 70s 
get clean and find a new way to live through a program of recovery. And if they can do that, then the moms out there can work on and transform themselves, not for their children, but for themselves. Because when they do that, it will pay dividends down the road with all of their relationships. So I think that's kind of what I would like to talk about and maybe write about. Maybe throw out some ideas and just let you be the editor for me, Michelle. Oh, gosh. No, I would just, um, no, I, you write beautifully and it's, it's a, it would be a God thing. Like I wouldn't want to get in the way of your creativity or what you had to say. And you, you've been there, you've lived there. Um, please tell your mother, thank you um, for, for staying, staying with uh, all of, all of what she did for so long. And that I'm just so happy for her that she has a relationship with you now um, and that she stuck it out and let her know how sorry I am for her pain of losing her daughter. I just, how tragic. I mean, oh, I've had a, a appendicitis before, but I can't imagine. I didn't know that could happen when you were pregnant. Um, but yeah, and, and let her know that, um, you know, we, we will pray for her too. And it's got to be tough you know, not, not having your spouse after so many years of living together. So I'm glad that you're there for her. Do you live nearby too? I live about 20 minutes away. Yeah. So we're, yeah, we're, we're the same. I'm, I grew up in East Tennessee and finally came back home when I got clean. And so uh, I live just 20 minutes down the road from my mom and text. I just texted her earlier today. Uh, You know, talked to her several times uh, a week and I try to see her as often as I can. So yeah, we're close. That's great. And people, um, they can find you at the ties that bind us.org. Correct. That is correct. Um, And feel free to put my email out there for anyone. It's, you know, I use it all the time anyway, because I I still do some freelance journalism. It's just my name backwards, wildsmithsteve at gmail.com. Okay. It's so funny. Wildsmithsteve at, what'd you say? gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So when I first started writing you, Steve, I, I said, my first line was, what a hoot. I thought you made up that name. <laughs> wow, Steve, right? And then I thought, oh, may, maybe that's his real name. So I went and Googled you. I was like, oh, goodness, that is his real name. So I get that a lot. I get that. It's a great pin name, though, is it not? It's a great yes, pin name. Yes. And I don't have to even change it. No, I wish I had one like that. Well, maybe not wild, but <laughs> wildsmithsteve at gmail.com. And that is correct. I invite him in all correspondence. Okay. So hang on. I'm going to stop and pause this podcast, okay. and um, but stay on and I'll talk to you in just a second.